welcome to part two of Books to Musicals on The Musicologist and the Nerd. I'm Dr. Elizabeth Concord here with Nicholas Atchison Wainwright III. Or Nick. <laughs> that is a little bit easier. It's less of a mouthful. Okay, we're going to start off with me. I'm going to talk about the color purple. So is, is it actually purple? You know, it's funny. They don't really talk about purple a whole lot in this book. <laughs> Um, I was looking up where that comes from, where the name comes from. And uh, now, of course, I'm going to have a hard time finding it. But there is there's a line in the in the book that one of the sort of secondary main characters says, uh, God doesn't like it when you walk through a field full of purple and you don't pay attention. And that there's some suggestion that perhaps that's where it comes from. I think that it's actually something different. And I'll tell you about that once you know who everybody is. Okay. Were you forced to read this book as a teenager? I was not. Oh, excellent. Because our mutual friend, Megan, I was telling her at a friend's birthday party, uh, actually at your wife's birthday party, about how much I was enjoying this book. And she looked at me like I had two heads and said, oh, you must not have had to read that in freshman English. <laughs> No, I didn't. Best way to kill a book. That's right. Yeah, I uh, had to read Lord of the Flies, which mm -hmm. I absolutely abhor, and a couple of other books of Mice and Men, which is okay. Um, yeah, anyway. So, uh, Megan is not a fan of this book. I, however, sat down and read it in one day. was just captivated by this book. Uh, for any of you who have been through graduate school, you may have a similar disease as I have where graduate school basically ruined reading for you. You maybe used to be the type of person who would curl up with a good book for eight hours straight in front of a fire and you could read Harry Potter five in one sitting. That was me. Totally. Yes. Nick just raised his hand. <laughs> yes, that, that was absolutely me. And then I went to grad school and it just ruined reading for me. And one of the things that I've really been enjoying about this podcast is the opportunity to research things that really interest me in the music world and the literature world and just kind of go to town and have a different reason to read it. And not have having to do it. Yes. Doing it because you want to do it. Yes. And getting to talk to Nick about it rather than having somebody grill you on it or expect you to come up with huge existential reasons why you should really have read this book and what it means for all of humanity. Um, but The Color Purple, it just grabbed me. And one Saturday, I just read it from cover to cover. It's a pretty short book. The book, I believe, came out in 1982. It's by Alice Walker. And it is, I don't know, probably 200 pages or so. It's about half the size of American Psycho. Yeah, about, well, about 300, but that's pretty decent sized uh, font. So one of the reasons I chose this is because, as I said in the last episode, in the last Macy's Day Parade, there were a number of musicals featuring people of color. Uh, you know, they always have the Broadway shows that are coming up do a number right in front of Macy's. And I was noticing that there were a large number of those shows featuring people of color, and I was really excited about that. And so when I was going through the list that I googled on books to musicals, I I saw this one on there and I thought, oh, that's one I've never read. I know nothing about it. And it's really interesting to see a musical that is almost entirely, all of the main characters certainly are people of color. So uh, when I was in school, I took a couple of classes, one on American opera with Dr. Brown and one on this exact topic that we're talking about here, books to plays to musicals with Dr. Block, Jeffrey Block. And um, in the American opera class, we studied Porgy and Bess, which hey, was... Can I stop you? Yeah. Your mic stand's rubbing against your chair, and I'm hearing it all the time. Why? It, not hugely, but just... Just enough. That's yeah. okay. Should I start over No, again? no, no. Nope. Go ahead and continue where you were. But okay. I was like, I had to stop you before it got too much. Yeah. Yeah, because otherwise we we want to have good footage, good recording stuff. Okay, I'm gonna move this a little closer. Then. <laughs> Microphones. How close is it optimally best to be? Like two like to three inches. Two to three inches. Okay, 
We'll see how from, good some of it is. Mic. Oh, so not the screen. This is just the pop filter. Okay. Um, cause yeah, I definitely was kind of like back here for part of it. So we'll see how that is. Yeah. It's going to be more clear when you're here versus when you're back here. Oh, wow. Way more clear. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So where was I? Oh, something yeah. about Bess. Yes. So in college I took at the university of Puget sound, I took a class on American opera from Dr. Brown and a class on, uh, books to plays to musicals from Dr. Block. And in the American opera class, we studied Porgy and Bess, which was the first opera, I believe the first opera to have an all black cast. It was by Gershwin. And it's, it's an amazing thing to watch. It's really, really long, really, really sad. And uh, it actually has quite a bit in common, I think with the color purple, although I I could kind of tell that it wasn't written necessarily by a person of color. It was more an interpretation of what they thought, what a what a, a white person thought would be the experience of a person of color. Uh-huh. Yeah, so it's it's good, but it's doesn't feel as authentic as maybe it could. I, I mean, maybe that doesn't matter, but it just seemed it's a little more surface. Sure. So this book is really interesting in the beginning of it, Alice Walker has a, a dedication, I guess you would call it. And she dedicates it. Here, I'll just read it to you. So, uh, to the spirit without whose assistance, neither this book nor I would have been written. And I think it's at the end. She thanks, she thanks the characters for letting her be the medium to tell their story. Like she sort of feels that she she was finding a story that existed and telling it, uh, even though it's fictional. So that I thought was kind of an interesting thing. But this this is a I picked really dark stories this time, Nick. <laughs> well, you know, you are that dark type of person. Oh my gosh, guys, it's been killing me after this surgery. The right half of my face doesn't work, and I, every time I smile, it hurts like the Dickens. And uh, yeah, I'm. I'm not a dark person. <laughs> I smile a lot. Um, but this was a growth moment for me. <laughs> yeah. So this book focuses on two sisters. Uh, so speaking of Harry Potter, I had some moments in this book where when I watched the movie, I was like, oh, that's how you say that. Um, the main character, her name is Celie. And I really thought through the whole book that it was Selly. And I thought, well, that's a kind of interesting name. I've never heard that before. And uh, I don't know if any of the rest of you read Harry Potter and spent a good chunk of the first book thinking that Hermione's name was Hermione. Um, (laughs) But I definitely did. (laughs) Um, The other one was one of the main characters is named Shug Avery, like sugar. But it's spelled S-H-U-G. And so I totally thought her name was Shug all the way through and was trying to figure out the logic of that until one of the men in the book says you're sweet as sugar. I was like, Oh yeah. Sh- I, I had that same problem with hunger games. Oh and, yes. Uh, Cinna. I always thought it was like, kinda. Uh huh. Uh, kinda. Like, yeah. Kind of a weird, and then I saw the movie like, Oh, oh Cinna. Yeah, it's like, I know a Kina, but kinda, that's yeah. weird. Like I kind of want to, <laughs> yeah. that's just weird. Yeah. Well, that was definitely the case with this. And uh, so it, this book is the story of two sisters, Celie and Nettie. And they are growing up in the South, two black women growing up in the South at the turn of the last century. Abject poverty in Georgia, really awful situation. Their mother is very, very ill and is kind of perpetually dying through their teenage years. And at one point, Celie, actually at two points, Celie is raped by her father and becomes pregnant, has two different children, which she thinks he has taken into the woods and killed. But he actually has not. But she thinks that that's the case. Eventually, he marries her off to a man who is very cruel and who beats her and forces her to work and to care for his children who actually throw rocks at her head and injure her and are just terrible to her. And she has this really, really hard life. So one of the big early cruxes in the book is that her sister comes to live with them and her husband, Celie's husband, tries to rape her sister. And so her sister runs away and ends up becoming a missionary and going to Africa. 
So the first half of the book is really about Celie and her life and all of the hardships that she went through. And the second half of the book is how Nettie comes back into her life and tells her story of being a missionary in Africa. So it's it's really gripping. You don't want to put it down. And the way that the book is structured is letters. And so Celie writes letters to God because she thinks her sister is dead and everyone that she loves is, you know, no one loves her. The only person who loves her is God. So she writes these letters to God and then Nettie writes her letters to Celie. Okay. That's a, that's a cool way of going about telling the story. It's very personal. Yeah. Yeah. It's very personal. And she says things to God and Nettie says things to Celie that you wouldn't, you know, if you were like telling this story to your grandchildren or if a narrator was telling the story about these people, it would be odd if they told it in that way. Mm-hmm. So, so deeply personal. Um, so there are lots of characters in this book that demonstrate many of the problems with the Jim Crow South and the difference between white and black and all the poverty. There's a lot of jazz. There's a lot of singing. Um, Celie's husband, his name, he's, he's really unnamed in the book. He's just called Mr. And he had an affair with a woman named Suge Avery. And Suge Avery was from their town, but then she went off to become this big kind of famous singer. And at some point she gets really sick. I think that she either uh, poisons herself with alcohol or becomes a drug addict of some kind. It's not really clear. But she comes back and she lives in their house and resumes her affair with Celie's husband. Like, just very blatantly. But what ends up happening is she she and Celie fall in love. Hmm. And have a relationship. And so she's sort of this like thing that can bring Celie and her husband together because they both really love her. And um, so Mr., like I said, is very cruel after he throws Nettie out of their house when she won't sleep with him. Uh, he hides all the letters that she writes to to um, to Celie. And so Celie thinks that her sister is dead for like 20 years. Wow. Yeah. She thinks her sister's dead because her sister said, the only thing that will separate me from you is death. And then nothing. Just gone. Um, so the first half of the book deals with that and, and the relationships between Celie and her stepchildren and her stepson's wife who starts off as this woman who will not be beaten. She will not be raped. She will, you know, she is her own woman. And, um, then she makes the mistake of standing up to a white person and, um, gets sent to jail where she's basically beaten every day and, um, just becomes really submissive and, uh, basically a slave. It's yeah, it's great. So yeah. So there's that part of the book. And then the second part talks about how Nettie joined up with these two missionaries who were supposed to go to Africa with another woman who ended up getting married. So she couldn't go. And there it's their, they have their two children with them who happen to look a lot like Nettie, like mm-hmm. a lot like Nettie. And Nettie's thinking, these are probably my niece and nephew. Mm-hmm. Yes. And indeed her father had sold the children to these missionaries who were unable to have their own kids. Okay. Yeah. And they raised them. They loved them. They had a wonderful life. They moved them to Africa and they were missionaries there for a long time, like 20 years before a road was built through the forest and they knocked down the whole village to put this road through for trade. And so then it's sort of the story when by the time that, that uh, Nettie is writing to Celie, she has married the male missionary because his wife died and um, this village has been demolished and they're going to be coming back. And so the story ends with um, Celie inheriting their father's house, starting her own business, sewing pants of all things. I think it's very, it's a good illustration of her freedom, right? Suddenly she's wearing the pants in the relationship. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Yep. She leaves her husband. She moves in with Shug Avery and she just basically gets control of her life. And then her sister comes back to her with her children, who she has thought they were all dead. Um, so, yeah, that's the it's basic like story. A good, well-rounded, wholesome story. But like American Psycho, it's very harsh. There there are, um, I mean, it's, it's really harsh. The men are awful for the most part in this book. And the women endure a lot of abuse and a lot of hard work, a lot of par- poverty, um, racial tensions are high. 
it's it's pretty hard to read um, it, from that standpoint, but you're so absorbed in it, mm-hmm. you know, you kind of can't put it down. Um, this book has had some controversy to it, like American Psycho did. I think I forgot to say this, but in Australia, American Psycho is sold shrink-wrapped. Really? Yes, because it is rated R18. So you cannot read this book. You can't be sold this book unless you're over 18. And certain libraries will not check it out to you unless you're over 18. American Psycho, that is. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't either until I was reading about it this morning. The color purple didn't have that same problem. But a lot of people point out that it's sort of the extreme opposite. Like, it shows misogynistic tendencies of the men but to the point where people felt that it hyped up the stereotype of the violent black man rather than yeah they felt it was bad they felt that it it poorly showed black men it was it was a black mark on on so it kind of an over it was resembling all black men versus one guy who was just insane yeah yeah so, yeah, it was creating this new norm, exactly, instead of the one guy who's outside of the norm and being this horrible, violent person. It was perpetuating this stereotype. I don't know, that kind of made me feel interesting, because I think that this was a reality for a lot of women, particularly at this time. You know, the the main bulk of it takes place in the 1930s, mm-hmm. and that was that was their life. They were abused. They were thought of as property they were not educated. Um, these are kind of common themes in there that women were not thought worth it. Um, yeah. So that was, it was really interesting. So whatever your take on it though, I think it's a really good book to read. And, uh, today, this morning I watched the movie. Steven Spielberg made a movie. Okay. So it's good then. Yes. I lo- I loved the book. I would highly recommend the book. The movie was kind con- uh, it did a good, whereas American Psycho sort of took about 50 pages of the book and made it into a movie, this the this movie did a good job of hitting a lot of the important plot points. Okay. But I really felt like it was kind of flat. Didn't have the emotional, didn't pull at your heartstrings the way that the book did. I'm kind of surprised to hear that when it's a Spielberg movie. And it's very good. And it was a nom- it was nominated for, I think, 11 Grammys, oh, not Grammys. Emmys? Yeah, it was nominated for 11 Academy Awards. Spielberg was the only person in the movie of the main characters not nominated or the main, you know, like uh, people involved who was not nominated. But it caused huge uproar because it didn't win any. So they felt like it got snubbed. Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So this was in 1986 awards, I think, because it came out in 1985. Um, And this was the movie that propelled Whoopi Goldberg to fame. She is the main character. Oh. Yes. Yes. It says, introducing Whoopi Goldberg. Huh. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really, really interesting. Um, Alice Walker, at first, was not a big fan of the movie. She, too, felt that it was lacking that that heartfelt, heart-rendering character that was present in her novel. She also felt that it was flat, but after a while she kind of came to terms with it and ended up liking it. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was one of four movies that Spielberg did that John Williams did not do the music for. Wow. Only four. Yeah. I guess that, I guess that kind of makes sense actually. Yeah. I think part of the deal was that if, because Oprah Winfrey is one of the other main characters and if she was going to be in it, her mentor Quincy Jones had to do the music. I think that was part of the deal. Oh, that. Yeah. Got it. She, she can pull some strings. Yeah. Well, and even at that point, she wasn't a huge megastar. I mean, she was, you know, famous, but not huge. And I think that uh, Quincy Jones was like, look, this is the way it is. Spielberg. <laughs> That's just it. Um, Danny Glover plays Mr. In it. It's very interesting watching him be such a horrible character in this show. Like it's amazing how you think of, you can think of someone as such a good personifying, such a good character your whole life. And mm-hmm. then it's like, wow, you are really evil. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, so I, I recommend people watch the movie, but it wasn't like earth shattering or anything. It's fine. Um, I do think that Whoopi Goldberg should have won best lead leading actress. That absolutely was not right. She did a fantastic job. She just became this woman and she had to age over, you know, they had a different actress for her as a teenager, but she, you know, probably aged 20, 30 years in the show and did it beautifully, you know, from being this really young, kind of shy, abused woman to really coming into her own. And, and yeah, it was, it was great to see. Okay. And the movie wasn't a musical, right? No, it was just a movie. It was not a musical. Uh, yeah, it's not, it was not a musical. So watch that this morning. And then the musical is stunning. Have you heard any parts of this musical? At I all? did not even know it was a musical. It is gorgeous. And we will link, uh, I believe it's the 2015 cast revival down below. The original musical came out in, um, hang on, bringing it up here. So the, the book came out in 1982, the music or the, book came out in 1982 the movie came out in 1985 and the uh musical 2005 okay the book came out in 1982 the music or the, ah the book came out in 1982 the movie in 1985 and the musical in 2005 but then it had a revival in the mid 2010s and so i watched I believe the Broadway revival uh, from the, from 2015 on YouTube. It's just stunning. It's, it's just stunning. I mean, again, it, it's a snapshot of the book. Um, it misses a lot and you don't, you don't necessarily know, maybe it's said in the program, but you don't necessarily know that Celia was raped by her father. Mm -hmm. um, you don't know a lot of the background and that makes a big difference to who she is. Mm-hmm. But the singers, it's like their soul is being ripped out of them and they're putting it for you on stage. It just, it's stunning, particularly, particularly the actress who plays Celie is just, she's just stunning. It's absolutely amazing. And it's got some jazz, it's got some gospel. Um, it's, it's just so stunningly beautiful absolutely loved it um oh i forgot to say at the end she finds out that the man she called her father is not actually her father so her children were not actually incestuous oh okay Very which nice. is is a bonus yeah <laughs> um one thing that i thought was really interesting about the musical is that there are these little breaks where the women of the community get together and gossip and that's how you learn a lot of the backstory um, like about Celie getting pregnant and all these other things. And they, it sort of reminds me of, um, from the music man, what's the song, uh, da -da 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 -da, cheap, 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 cheap. And all the, all the women are kind of gossiping and talking together. I'll have to look the song up, but, um, they've made fun of it on family guy. Um, Oh, anyway, it's a song about women gossiping and basically being like clucking hens. And these women remind me of a Greek chorus except that they're, they're, um, they're black women and they're just, they have these little short things where they're talking about like, Oh, her husband's really good looking. She's so lucky when so, really he's beating the crap out of her. It's the muses from Hercules. It is. It's totally the muses from Hercules. It so is. That's spot on. It's the muses from Hercules. See, Disney is relatable to everything. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. So, it was really good. I felt like in the musical, they did a really good job of dealing with the lesbian moments um, because that's really, I don't know that Celie really is a lesbian. It's just that she's never actually felt loved by another person before. Mm -hmm. And so to, it's a totally different experience to make love with someone as opposed to A, be raped by someone or B, just have meaningless sex. And so to have, to watch her feel loved by someone and to hear it expressed in song is just stunning. Um, so that was really good. And yeah, I highly recommend that everybody watch it. The other thing I liked about the production that I watched, 
to me, so we were talking at the beginning, why did they call it the color purple? Mm -hmm. And kind of right at the beginning of the book, she sees, uh, Celie sees a picture of Suge Avery because her husband is absolutely obsessed with Suge. He wanted to marry her. They have three children together, actually. Okay. Um, but his father said, there's no way you are wasting your life on that woman um, because she was a singer. Hmm. And so Suge Avery is there's a picture of her. Celie becomes kind of obsessed with it and about what is this woman's life like. She actually looks like she's happy. Um, she's beautiful. And she always seems to be wearing purple in the musical. Hmm. Yeah. And they do, they put a moment into the musical that's not in the book or the movie where they bring in the color purple. And they, it's it's kind of in their their loving moment where they're talking about, you know, God made all these things and he loves all of these things. Um, including the color purple. So that was interesting, but I loved the way that they sort of worked it in that the color purple is associated with Suge, which is associated with Celie's ultimate redemption and her ex extricating herself from this horrible situation that she's in, this very abusive marriage. That's, that's pretty cool. Just kind of wind a new theme in there, add a theme to the musical that didn't exist in the book, that, but still is very relatable and works. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of was hinted at in the book, but never really blatantly stated. Mm -hmm. um, that, that was really good. Some, I think some of the most beautiful, beautiful, be the most musical, oh, I can't talk. The moments that were the most beautiful musically happened in the second half where the letters start coming from Nettie in Africa. And they did this really beautiful sort of, uh, African sounding couple of songs where uh, Nettie is talking about her life. The disappointing thing for me about the movie and about the musical is that it really shorts Nettie's part in the story and makes it all about Celie, mm. which it kind of is, but there's this really, there are lots of vivid descriptions of what Nettie was experiencing in Africa. And she's a very, you know, for being kind of, forced out of the book for the first half. Um, she's a very deep character. And the movie did a good job of showing some of the things that were happening, but still it was sort of like a little montage, basically, of what happened to her in Africa. And then, oh, we're, we're back with Celie now. Sure. And the musical did that too. I think they had two songs that talked about Nettie's time in Africa that didn't describe um, one of the missionary ladies dying and Nettie marrying her husband Samuel and uh, barely touched on all the different things that were going on in this Olinka village in Africa that were similar to oppressions that people were facing in the States that women were facing. Um, it just kind of cut that all out. So that was a bit of a bummer and that music was beautiful and I would have loved to have heard more of it. Um, the other really interesting thing that happens, so in the book, now, Nick, cover your ears. This may be too graphic for you. Oh, he's covering his ears. <laughs> um, in the book, Suge Avery is asking Celie, well, don't you like having sex with your husband? She's like, no, I hate it. It's totally awful. And so Suge starts kind of giving her tips on things that can make sex more fun. <laughs> and so she tells her about her clitoris. <laughs> and then they end up having sex. But anyway, so in the musical, the way that's brought out, it's... Um, in the musical, the way that's brought out is Suge goes to the jukebox, which is this kind of uh, bar lounge place that's opened nearby and sings this song about push the button, <laughs> which is a very clear allusion to what she and uh, Celie were talking about and doing. So I thought that was a cool way to handle that. Um, and then in the movie, the biggest thing that Spielberg regretted is that he sort of hinted that they had a lesbian relationship, but didn't really explore that. And it's a really big part of the book. So it was too bad that he didn't have the courage to include that. Uh, and he feels that way too. So he knows okay. about that. But yeah, I highly recommend that everybody go uh, there too. So I, I watched... Uh, again, out of somebody's sleeve, uh, the Broadway version, um, which was really great. And then there's also a revival cast album, which I will link, which is really, really good. The original 2005 album, I didn't feel like was mastered very well, um, which is unfortunate. It's good, but it's just, it's not well mastered. And, um, 
when you watch the one that's filmed out of somebody's sleeve, some of them, they clearly didn't get good quality recordings. And so they flip back and forth between the 2005 recording and what they recorded out of their sleeve. And it just, every time it's very jarring because it's so different. Oh yeah. It's so different. And it's the sound quality was terrible in the YouTube one uh, out of their sleeve, but they just didn't have, it didn't translate as well to, to a CD. I thought, so that's a bummer it is a big bummer listen to the 2015 revival cast album it's really good okay do it you're gonna do it i'm gonna do it i have a huge list of things to listen to though you know we're gonna have to take a whole year off from our podcast just to listen to the list we've generated during our podcast right yeah (laughs) take a take a break listen to music nonstop, and then we'll just our spouses will hate us yes Yes. I made Nate watch American Psycho with me over the weekend here. And uh, he was like, wow, I remember liking that movie a whole lot better when I was a teenager. <laughs> now he's like, it's not that good. <laughs> but yeah. So Nick, what are you going to talk about? Okay. You, well, Libby knows what I'm going to talk about because this is kind of what sparked our mutual interest in musicals. Definitely. Um, and this is Alexander Hamilton, or the stage production just simply known as Hamilton. So the book was written by Ron Chernow, and I don't know what Ron Chernow looks like, but I have a feeling he's like this old gray-haired guy that just kind of lives in libraries looking up historical facts and writing autobiographies about people. Like, you think he kind of looks like David McCullough, basically? Sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm going to look him up. I'm going to find out. Yeah, because... Ron Chernow turns out biographies of historical figures, and they are very well written. So Alexander Hamilton was the first uh, secretary of the treasury, uh, grew up in the Caribbean in uh, Nevis, I believe. He moved uh, to the U.S. when he was young after his father abandoned him. His mother died. He lived with a cousin. They died. He worked for a clerk, and they thought he was pretty smart, so they funded his trip. And he grew up, and it's not a small book. Not at all. Um, at the time, I had a job where I could throw in headphones and just listen, but it's uh, it's just shy of eight hundred pages long. Small font, and it's uh, and it's a large book. Yeah, yeah it's hefty. I could uh, I could knock someone out with it if I really wanted to, <laughs> but it is engrossing. You just want to keep reading it. Now, personally, I do have a a tendency, I love nonfiction books because I love stories about people that actually existed that had interesting lives. And it's really hard to have more of an interesting life than Alexander Hamilton did. So Agreed. Yeah. Oh, look, I just pulled up a picture of Ron Chernow. You're totally right. He's like a slightly younger David McCullough. Oh, yeah, exactly. Uh Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. That's how you would would go to his book signing and be like, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, exactly. that. Yeah. Not at all surprised. Nice looking guy. So, yeah. Very plain, nice looking, you know, probably lives around the corner from me and I would never notice. (laughs) You'd see him on his way to the library and be like, wow, I wonder where he's going. Yeah. Mm. No, I probably wouldn't even think that much of him. Just like, oh, dude. Okay. Hey, Hey, Ron. So, Ron Chernow did a spectacular job, as I was saying, about really telling the story of what Alexander Hamilton was who he was as a person what his life was like and he did it in such a great way that it was a story it's not just a fact it's not a list it's not you know just a oh he did this and then this and then this it really puts you in his place about how he grew up about the turmoil he faced about surviving a hurricane and then writing about it and then his literature turning into this big thing and just becoming so well known for that, that they just had to keep him going. That to me is very funny. It's, it's almost like somebody who puts up a YouTube video these days and then, Oh, they hit it big. You know, it's like, it's such a small thing, but it Mm -hmm. really propelled his whole life. Exactly. If that hadn't happened. Yeah. They bought him a ticket to New York where he was just this like young kid, just trying to figure it out from there. And you know what he did? Um, I'm not going to recount the whole book. It's a big book. It'd be hard. It'd be yeah. really difficult to do that. Lots and lots of detail. It's worth every second of reading. The audiobook is great because 
My eyes get tired after a while. I swapped back and forth regularly when reading this. So, um, it, but in short, so Alexander Hamilton grew up in the Caribbean, moved to New York when he was very young, right in the middle of the revolution. Right when America was getting ready to start this big fight with Britain. And he was all for it. He egged him on. He made friends. He made enemies. He was um, all... He had such a strong ability to speak and to write that he was a tool for all these people to be able to convey this message. And he was so eager and young that he just wanted to get there and fight. That was He wanted to be in the army. And he was. He, he was in a special unit. He stole some cannons. He really, he did good work there. But his writing was so intense that he just kept getting pulled away from the front line to just keep writing. Can you imagine if he hadn't been, if, if they hadn't noticed that he was such a good writer and he'd just, you know, eventually become, I don't know, some kind of colonel and had had an entirely military career and yeah. how different things would be. Right. Exactly. And it, it was so, they, they really captured, Chernow really captured this kind of inner essence that he had. And this kind of struggle he had between the two about wanting to go out and to be frontline and yet channeling his talents, his ta- talents that he bred that really got him over to the uh, to New York and to be part of this whole thing. And eventually he does kind of settle into the role better of being an assistant, being the one writing. He during some battles, he he was working under General Washington. He was conveying to congress the need for supplies he was the one that was really the word or the the words that he was speaking in in behalf of these to the point where they weren't dictating to him they just said write it and he that's how he essentially became how he ultimately became a secretary of the treasury one of the first members of the cabinet of the first cabinet of the united states pretty epic yeah the funny thing is, George Washington didn't know he was good with math. Really? Yeah. No, somebody recommended to George Washington, hey, you should make this guy Secretary of the Treasury. He's really good at math. And George Washington's like, oh, really? I mean, yeah, I'll make him, but I... Of course, I definitely, that. yeah. Because when, uh, when he was still just a general, George Washington was... Uh, Hamilton was his right-hand man. He was the one that he went to, and he penned all his uh, all his orders, everything through. He was his scribe, basically. Yeah. Can you imagine how much Ron Chernow had to go through? Because I think a lot of that has has been saved, has been kept. Well, yeah, exactly. And they, how many letters he must have read? I mean, holy cow! He wrote so many letters, just innumerable uh, amount of letters. And he, Ron Chernow, I know, went through a lot of them, especially to his wife, Eliza, when they were courting and through all their time, just telling the story and showing how they slowly built their relationship and how he convinced her, basically, this was the way to go. Now, not an easy task. He was basically a street urchin. Um, and, a parentless street urchin. <laughs> exactly. And she was from a really well-off family in up, upstate New York. So there was a whole different you know, demographic going on there, a definite, he was fighting his way up there, but he was so well-spoken hmm. that he could fit in with any crowd. Almost. Almost. A I was going to say fit in or stand out from yeah. any crowd. Yeah. A lot of people did make fun of him because apparently he, this it was kind of an old money, new money type of thing. He came in and he just really overdid it. So people old money type people they're like yeah no he's way too pompous way too much power in his hair way overdoing it look here. at that cravat oh my gosh yes exactly. <laughs> yeah so definitely wasn't loved by everybody he definitely had his enemies and throughout the story throughout the book it it shows that he meets and eventually makes enemy aaron burr and somebody that he uh, encounters through a good chunk of his life and is basically just a political enemy um, on the personal level, they seem to get along all right, but politically they're very different and they're kind of meet each other at every corner. So it builds and it's an 
it builds to a breaking point where Aaron Burr is running for president and it it's a tie, which I guess at that point with the delegates and everything, it's more, more likely to be a tie. And when it's a tie, I believe it's up to the house then to break the tie. And Alexander Hamilton, having been in politics for a very long time at that point was a very influential person in the government. And he was able to kind of help sway the house one way or the other. And when they were inquiring with him, he said, yeah, I don't trust Aaron Burr as far as I can throw him. And it went. I I disagree with most things on most things with Jefferson, but I don't know where Burr stands. Exactly. That's exactly it. And Aaron Burr was kind of ticked. And now he was vice president because that was a thing. Whoever thought the uh, loser yeah. being vice president would be an awful idea. Uh, um, so, the, and this is this is one of the cool things. Aaron Burr writes him a letter saying, you have insulted me to the very being. You're a scallywag. You're a scoundrel. And uh, you're a dishonor. And, and Alexander Hamilton's response is, you got to be more specific here. Which time, which insult are you talking yeah, about? Yeah. What, Here's a list of 39 insults that I've given to you over our lifetime. Literally <laughs> listed them out for him. Yeah, that was pretty funny. Yeah. So official challenge, they went out, they dueled. At the time, it was kind of a civilized man's duel where basically they go out, they pull out their guns, they shoot into the air and they call it good. But... Hamilton was getting a little old at this point. So he threw on his glasses. He's looking at just trying to figure out how to use this gun. He hadn't used a gun since the war a long time. And he, so he's fiddling around with it. And Burr's getting nervous. Burr wasn't very good in the, in the army. And Alexander Hamilton that, that was pretty skilled. So he's got his glasses on. He's got, he's got the trigger he's fiddling around with. So one, two, three, boom, shoots him right, I believe, into the shoulder. Long story short, Hamilton dies. Now, there are so many details I just breezed over. Remember, this is an 800-page book. 800 pages in one five-minute synopsis. <laughs> exactly. You know <laughs> The super abridged version. You know, so many little details. Like, he happened to die at the same place his son was shot in a duel. Yep. But one of the best ways of actually summarizing this is the play, the musical. And I'm going to say now that the musical skims over so many details and it changes a couple of big things. But it still is such a good portrayal and it's an amazing musical on its own. I think we've kind of established today that there's no way that you can fit the entire book into the musical unless you are Wagner and have four four-hour sections. Yeah. That seems to be the overarching theme. Yeah, and then, you know... I probably wouldn't even keep uh, our interest. So no, that's right. That's yeah. right. So uh, the musical is written by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Woo. Yeah. Amazing composer. He's uh, This wasn't his first one. He also wrote Into the Heights, which got a bunch of uh, Tony Awards. Coming out as a movie soon. Look for that. Yes. And uh, Hamilton just... It, if you don't know about Hamilton, there's something... You've been out of the musical world for way too long. You've lived on a bigger rock than we have. Maybe a smaller rock. You've lived on a smaller rock than we have. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And this is actually what propelled me back into music or into musicals specifically was that this came out and the soundtrack was everywhere. There was, there was not anybody you could walk past not seeing it. Um, and to the point where a friend of mine who is a theater director for our local high school. That's exactly what I was thinking. Was so sick of it. She didn't want to see the musical because she was so burned out from the music because all of her theater kids were singing it nonstop. They were obsessed. So what makes this musical stand out from kind of the classic musical is that it's almost all hip hop and rap. And it's hip hop and rap that tells the story perfectly it's spot on and it it's just it's very very well presented the only there's only a couple of classical musical styles more you know what you would expect out of musical and um 
And a lot of them are, are parody, exactly. like all the ones of King George. Those are well, very like, you know, they're yeah. playing old instruments and, uh, well, that's exactly it because yeah. they're, they are portraying this old style of ruling, this old thing versus the new up and coming. This is what's changing. Yep. And it's very much a juxtaposition there, you know, the old way of doing musicals versus the new way. Uh, the other big thing that was kind of groundbreaking in this is they are portraying very old white people with very young black people. You know, that is really interesting. It actually just occurred to me. What if we did the same thing in our government? We replaced every old white man with <laughs> someone of color or a woman or something a little bit different. Wouldn't that be interesting? You don't have to put that part in. But wouldn't that wouldn't that be interesting to just be like, huh, let's just flip it. Yeah. Yeah. But so the the thing with this, though, with the replacing old white guys with young black guys, a lot of there was actually some criticism about that. Huh. Basically, whitewashing history. Like there was a lot of racism. And the book actually goes in a lot of detail about this. Um, Alexander Hamilton actually was uh, part of a club that was very much against slavery. Very, very much. He was, you know, kind of a forefront of that. But George Washington had a lot of slaves. So did Jefferson. Jefferson had a lot of slaves. Um, it touches lightly on on that in the book. But there's a lot of slavery. There's a lot of issues that are going on there that are just completely washed out during the play. Well, not entirely. There's one really good song where Hamilton and uh, Jefferson are debating back and forth. And Hamilton, you know, Jefferson brags about how the South has paid off all of its debts. You know, and Hamilton goes, well, yes, I do know, actually, because mm -hmm. you use slave labor. Mm -hmm. So obviously you've paid off your debts because you're horrible slavers. Yeah. And, uh, but it isn't, it isn't super prevalent. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's very much. And there's, you know, a little talk about the first black battalion and there's a couple of light, light points in there. But what I think the musical does is it gets people actually looking at history, at least people that are interested in it. A lot of people will just love the music because it's great and they'll love the show because it's a great show. But then it gets people diving deeper. And that's what got me into reading this book. Um, the music was just so good that, and I started watching interviews with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda and he's talking about how he just like got lost in this book and how it just completely changed him and he had to you know, make this musical from it. So I'm like, okay, well, obviously I have to get this book. So I got it. I read it and then Libby was like, well, obviously you have to get this book and bought it for me as a gift, like the week after I finished it. So like, well, I'm, I'm behind the times. Yeah. So now we each have a copy to read and, um, I've just gotten my father-in-law hooked on Ron Chernow, actually, which I've totally debated. If anyone knows, let us know. Is it Ron Chernow, Ron Chernov? How, how, how do you pronounce it? Um, Yes, but so if you haven't read Washington, it's fantastic. And Grant just hit our bookstores, and my father-in-law is almost finished with it, even though it is bigger than Hamilton. And he says it's a really fantastic book. So check out some other Ron Chernow books. They're just amazing. I do have Washington. I haven't. I've gotten maybe 50 pages into it. It's great, except everyone keeps throwing other books at me that are easier and faster to read. Oops. Yeah. <laughs> Now, I'm not going to say that I love every single song out of Hamilton, but there's hardly a song that I don't just absolutely love. I like the mechanics of the dueling song, and I like how it relates to a lot of different parts, you know, when Hamilton is dueling and his son is dueling, and I, I like that about it, but I it's not one that I pull out and listen to repeatedly. Mm -hmm. And... You know, I could totally see where my friend Jenny got burnt out with these because at a certain point, like the theme, Alexander Hamilton, the first song ever, like it plays into so many other songs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. And I'm done. I'm done with it for a little while. I yeah. take breaks, but there are the, there are so many others that tell the story or that are so deep into the story, really. So guns and ships probably my favorite it also is the fastest rap uh yeah the fastest rap on broadway 
And um, like you think it is, or someone else has actually said it no, is. It legitimately is. And David Diggs is the fastest rapper on Broadway with huh. that song. Huh. So just is he related to Tay Diggs. I have no idea. From Rent, I wonder. I'll have to look. Hmm. Continue on. I'm I'm going to Google. Okay. Yeah. So um, that one's a really cool and when you look into it, it really does tell the story about how they went back to France to ask for help and came back with a whole artillery. And it's like, oh yeah, France is helping. We're going to help you kick some butt. The flotilla is here. Yeah. And I mean, that made a huge, a huge amount, but it's not all rap. Then there's songs like Dear Theodosia. Oh, it's, it's such a good song. It is. It's a sweet, soft song. It's Aaron Burr talking to his young daughter. And it's sweet and it's loving. Now, I'm going to take a, a little note here. Just tell you, the play makes Aaron Burr seem way more level-headed and, and uh, you know, evenly sided than the book does. The book pretty much just says, oh, yeah, this guy's a jerk and he only plays to his own power. The play makes him look very even-handed, slightly leaning to one side and you know, kind of back and forth and you could kind of love him a little bit more. In fact, it was, yeah, that I, I liked his character a lot. So there's a lot of different results there. Now I'm looking through the whole list right now and holy cow, 46 songs in this musical. Yeah, I think that that my favorite has to be Aaron Burr's song, uh, Wait For It. That one, that is just my absolute favorite. That and, uh, of course, the story of tonight, which is okay in this, but then when combined with Found Tonight from Evan Hansen is amazing. Oh, yeah. yeah. Amazing. And I love Satisfied. I love Helpless. Um, I actually really like the cabinet battles those ones are really cool um and um in the hamilton mixtape which is an additional soundtrack that came out with this there is a third cabinet battle oh really yeah i'll have to look for that i didn't even know that was a thing Mm -hmm. and yeah so they as i'm looking through this list here it tells the story of the play and now i have seen this play um, again, through someone's sleeve. I think Libby and I both sat down and watched this one. I, that one may have been through their buttonhole. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember? That was very funny. You could definitely tell when the usher came over and they were suddenly like, whoop, put my coat back on. Yeah. You know? <laughs> but there was hardly anything that you couldn't tell happened. I think there was one scene in the play that you couldn't surmise from the music. Right. So if you've listened to the soundtrack, you have the story down. Yeah, I think because that's partially because they took Lin-Manuel Miranda sort of did more of an operatic musical by including uh, the rap in there as recitative. And so the spoken word is almost as much a part of the music, you know, because it's quote unquote recitative. Whereas a lot of musicals, they'll sort of have breaks where they have some dialogue. So you miss some things like American Psycho. They're definitely chunks where you're like, who knows what just happened there. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, when you listen to Hamilton, you get the majority of the story Yeah, yeah. from I, the soundtrack. When when I watched it, I was not at all surprised at any little thing. Like I said, there was one little scene where it really kind of made sense and I'm glad they added it or that, that it was in there because it was an important part of the book. Um, but then just everything else was absolutely just went right along with the music. So it's... It's been one of my favorite musicals. It's the one that kind of launched me into musicals. And it just swept away the Tonys. Um, to the point, it was it was actually a joke during the... Um, a, a literal joke made by the host of the Tonys, uh, who uh, was James Corden that year. He was doing his opening number. And he was uh, mimicking, you know, uh, parodying a bunch of different styles. And he... I can't even remember what the song was, but it's like, it has the line said, just you wait. And he's pointing at 
the cast. Uh-huh. Now, just you wait. No, just you wait. Yeah, you yeah. right there. It, it was. You're gonna win. It, yeah, <laughs> everyone knew it. There was no surprise when they just completely swept the Tonys. They as they should have. It was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. And honestly, that year was amazing for Broadway in general. But I think was it 2015 when this came out? I'm trying to remember. So it was. It definitely uh, came out while Nick was our roommate. So it was probably either 2015 or 2016. Um, he's checking now. Hold, please. Googling. Stand by for Google. <laughs> Stand by for Google. Just you wait. Just you. It wait. came out in uh, not 2020. Well, and I did hear recently too that they are actually going to be releasing as a movie the one of the 2016 Broadway productions of Hamilton. And I am going to pre-order the crap out of that thing. So, um, so this came to Broadway January 20th of 2015. Um, sometime during the run of the original cast, they had a professional film, uh, film setup going in there and had it filmed completely with the original cast. Really well done from what I understand. That's great. Then they had a bidding war to the different, uh, movie studios about who can have the rights to put this out. So I believe it's um, coming. I Disney. Dis- oh, I, it's d- going to be Disney. Disney came. Uh, Disney won it, and it's coming into theaters. One second, I believe it's December of this year. Oh my gosh! Yes, we have a movie double date already. I'm so excited. We basically, uh, I don't know about you, Nick, but we basically never go to movies anymore. Um, And Nick works a lot in the evening and as does his wife. So I bet you that you don't either. Yeah, no, no. And this is one that um, I'll just like call in. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully, Robin, you are not listening to this. Turn it off now. (laughs) Nick's supervisor, turn it off now. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, okay. So it's coming out in 2021 and it's not a reimagining. It's not Cats. Thank God. It's the film or it's the stage show shot not through someone's sleeve. The other thing that is really, really exciting is that as long as the COVID thing doesn't go totally crazy, the Broadway show, Broadway version is touring through Seattle in May and June. So let us all hope that all this craziness is over by then because I think both of us should drag our spouses to see it. Absolutely. And if anyone's feeling especially charitable, you know, just, uh, you know, Feel free to message us. Let us know where you want to send the tickets. And, That's uh, right. Do we have a Patreon now? We do. It's not released yet, but we do have one. We're working on it. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get so going if anyone there. wants to buy us tickets, that would be fab. Yeah, absolutely. That'd absolutely. be so great. So, yeah, I, so great. I don't know if you can tell, but um, we're recording this without the help of a lot of professionals. We're literally <laughs> sitting in my spare bedroom with a couple of cheap microphones and removed all the instruments off my wall so it's not too echoey. The occasional cat and dog. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I try to edit those out. I do all the editing myself. So Yes, he does. Yeah. And I usually that. come up with the topics, although we do have a good bit of back and forth about what we want to do. And um, yeah, mostly we just want to encourage other people to geek out about music and musicals and all those other things as much as we do and to listen to new things and have something cheery to think about. Although I don't feel like either of my musicals were particularly cheery. Your Hamilton, actually pretty much everybody in yours dies. <laughs> your two musicals, the two main characters. Yeah. yeah that, Sorry guys. We didn't pick particularly cheerful. Yeah. Around but this time. You know what? I didn't pick cheerful, but I picked great books and great musicals. Yeah. I feel that way too. In fact, Wicked and Hamilton are probably the two or some of the two biggest musicals in the last 20 years. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I actually almost had the chance to see Wicked on the West End and I didn't go. And um, yeah, that's it. I'm really bummed out that I didn't go. I'm not surprised though that Hamilton has a bidding war for or had a bidding war for who was going to produce their movie because I remember before I had seen it. A bunch of our friends were obsessed with it, uh, Amy and Brandon in particular. And they kept asking me, well, are you going to put your name in the lottery to try to get tickets? I'm like, why would I do that? What show is worth that? Hmm. No. And then I listened to it. and I was like, oh, I have to see this show. It's amazing. Yeah. I, th- I think at that time, though, that involved flying to New York to actually go see it. It did. Well, um, 
Brandon got really lucky because he, I don't remember where he was, but he went somewhere for work. And while he was there, there was some touring show or something. This was maybe a year and a half ago or something, some touring show. And he actually was able to get tickets and go see it in the theater. I mean, amazing. Because I don't think he was in New York. I think he was in like California or something. It's been touring for a few years Mm -hmm. now, so I'm not surprised. But I mean, they were expensive tickets, but he said they were absolutely worth it. Yeah, that's that's my justification right now is do I want to spend... I think the cheapest tickets are about $390. Maybe we have to leave our spouses at home. They can take care of the pets. Exactly. (laughs) Sorry, guys. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, the other good musicals that are coming to Seattle coming up soon, one of which is by Alan Menken, is Sister Act. Oh, yes. Yes. Heard great things about that one. Yeah, I'd love to see that. And then the other one. Oh my gosh. It just fell out of my head. Well, anyway, Sister Act looks like, looks like, oh, Book of Mormon. That's the other one. Book of Mormon's going to be here. I have a friend that already has tickets to go see it. Um, just as expensive as Hamilton. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to go. Uh, Book of Mormon is performing at the same time that our musical, Mamma Mia, here at our local community theater is supposed to be happening. However, rehearsals for that were just uh, postponed until at least the end of April. And it was supposed to open in the beginning of May. Mm-hmm. So um, stay tuned. <laughs> Poor theater people everywhere. Right now, I, I really feel bad for artists. And I will say, uh, if anybody out there beyond our lovely friend group listens to this, go out there and support a local artist. If you see someone playing music on the street or at your local bar, if you know a new artist who's got a CD out, um, someone who's got a Patreon, go and support them because this COVID virus has been really hard on anyone who depends on crowds for their living. Um, So support your local small businesses. Yeah. That's my that's my soapbox. Our our local community theater, which just turns out such amazing stuff, has completely shut down every production until I think at least April twenty fourth. Yep. Yep. Which was absolutely the right thing to do. We don't want to put people in danger, but uh guys, our community theater, just to give you an idea, I think our main theater seats two hundred and twenty five, something like that. So uh the governor said no more groups of two hundred and fifty. So we're we're just right under it, but no reason to play with people's lives. Yeah, yeah. Just just got to be safe right now. Yep. So hopefully we will be bringing you more content very soon. Forgive us if there is a gap due to COVID. We will do the best we can. <laughs> yes, and we promise it's not all going to be about musicals. That's just our first season here. Um, it's been on the top of our mind, so we're just rolling with it. Um, at some point, we're going to really tap Libby's mind and really channel her uh, PhD there and Soon we'll be uh, learning about... Wait, what was your specialty there, Libby? My specialty was late 19th century music in Victoria, BC, and particularly how musical ritual was used to empower... Nick's falling asleep. Uh, It was used to empower British peoples, particularly English British peoples, uh, and add to their ability to rule non-British peoples in the city of Victoria between 18... 71 and 1885. Maybe we'll only have one episode on that. (laughs) It's okay. Uh, For anyone who's a skipper out there, you can skip that one if you want to. My my dissertation is available. Just let me know if you're interested. (laughs) Musical ritual and identity. It's great. Yes, yes. So tune in to our next show where we are going to be... Oh, you know what? We're not ready for this part yet. Nick, what's been on your playlist this week? Okay, so this has been an interesting week for me. Um, I I am very much a nerd, a geek, however you want to say it. Um, no one in my life is surprised by this. And the way I explained it to my coworkers the other day is that I'm a well-rounded geek. And again, <laughs> they were in no way surprised when I said this. Because instead of just listening to music nonstop, which I do... I decided to try to make some music, which is interesting. I've never actually composed music. I I wouldn't call this composing. This was literally, I started with one instrument. I recorded something. I started looping that. And then I added another one and another one. And I'm now 13 tracks in. And it, it was, it's, I think it's very fun, but it makes me think of queen. See which queen song. When you listen to it, you 
you think of. See if you're with me on this. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and let, let me know what you think, because I actually don't know what she's talking about at this point. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, it's a fun one. I'll tell you next time after you've listened. Let's but, have some comments. Which Queen song do you think you could sing over the top of this track? Okay. So um, Libby actually suggested it. So I'm going to uh, attach a clip of it. And I'm not done with the track, but I'm going to attach a clip of this track as my like listening for the week. And just honest, let me know what you think if I should change anything, if you should get better, whatever. And it's such an interesting learning process for me. If it needs to have more instruments. <laughs> um, when Libby walked into my office today, there was at least eight instruments strewn about mm -hmm. because I was switching from one to another, like trying different ones. Now, I don't proficiently play many instruments, but I could eke out. I had six different uh you know like fingering charts and chord charts out in front of me so well and when you're doing it individually and then recording it that's great because you can get just the sound that you want exactly right? it's like yeah the trombone i needed two notes on the trombone you can so. do that oh yeah that's a fun story how'd you wake your wife up this morning nick hey you know a little reveille at you know it was like eight it wasn't that early. a little reveille on a trombone <laughs> yeah. i heard even your cat was horribly displeased but it has such a better tone than a trumpet <laughs> Although I did have my trumpet out as well. Yeah, uh, well, you know, you have to have variety. Variety is the yeah, spice of Exactly. A few stringed instruments, a few wind instruments, uh, a few percussion instruments. It was a good variety. <laughs> Your poor wife. Um, <laughs> well, this week on my listening thing, other than the musicals that I was studying, I have been uh, trying really hard to focus on my work. And so while I've been plugging away at Invoices, I've been listening to different soundtracks from Jane Austen movies. So the Kira Knightley, Pride and Prejudice, and uh, the Sense and Sensibility with Kate Winslet and um, Emma Thompson. The Sense and Sensibility soundtrack with Kate Winslet and Emma Thompson that, from that movie. And uh, then I've been listening to the soundtrack from the Tolkien biopic. So those are the ones that I've been listening to, in addition to some fun podcasts about knitting, particularly the Knit Picks podcast, which I highly recommend. Yes. So tune in next time. We're going to be talking about our favorite Broadway covers and cover artists. So here it is. Nick's compilation composition just for you. Enjoy. Bye. Thank you.